I have to admit, when this first came across my desk, I was just kind of like, wait, really? Oh, don't mistake me, I enjoy Disney films. Unironically, as an adult, without watching them with kids. <laughs> I actually enjoy several Disney films even right now. If, if I popped in um, Aladdin or Lion King or Hercules, I would enjoy those films now, unironically. And I'm not especially ashamed to admit that. I think there's nothing wrong with enjoying a work as long as it's... Oh, what's the word? Good. Because that's my big trick, right? Obviously, I'm not going to enjoy everything Disney pumps out, and indeed, I don't. Same thing with Pixar, for that matter. Oh, God, I've actually seen Cars 3, too. Are they making a fourth one? I'm getting off topic. But I have to admit, it did make me smile a little bit. If you've been paying attention at all to this year's Rumination lineup, there are a lot more films, statistically speaking, than there are games, and I actually like that. I mean, I could point out time and scheduling things, but the point is, from a purely creative perspective, this format of me sitting here, notes, you, to me, this works a lot better with audiovisual media rather than interactive media. I feel like this is one of the reasons why both the Mini Nations and the Monday and Tuesday television Ruminations have been so successful is because you watch the episode, and then, we, then I sit and chat about it, and you share your thoughts about it, and I read your comments, and we've got a format, right? It doesn't work quite the same way with the game. Now, streaming, that works great for game discussion, and it's one of the reasons why I've been pushing so hard into the streaming things for the last, like, four years at this point. So I was happy to see, you know, more films on the docket, but, I mean, that's, this is like ten films, I think? Nine? I forget the exact number. It's already in the schedule. I, I could pull up a calendar if I wanted to. But this is a lot of films. I'm like, you guys sure? All right, well, I'll do my best. This is... The specific request was for the Disney Renaissance films. And we later clarified what exact films those were, which is the ones on the, on the list. What's interesting to me is this, is this is referred to as the Disney Renaissance. But even if you don't know the behind-the-scenes material here, it makes perfect sense to call it this. Each of these films is... Well... With very few exceptions, each of these films is considered a classic. Each of them is considered core Disney. And, well, this is also when Disney was turning itself into a filmmaking juggernaut that would eventually become the multimedia juggernaut that it is now. The former under Eisner and the latter under... Uh, Iger, I think? It's Bob Iger... It, oh, jeez, I can't remember. I know it's Eisner for this one. I forget who the current CEO is. He's, he's you know, the... The guy who is currently in charge, I can't think of his name, I'm sorry. But he's the one who led Disney to becoming a massive multimedia doom company. But Eisner, the guy who was in charge at this point in time, he's the one who steered the company when it became this. But Eisner doesn't get all the credit. In fact, I'm not even sure he gets most of it. Uh, the man who probably gets most of that credit is actually Katzenberg. See, Mr. Katzenberg, who was the head of the animation department at this point in time, uh, he had a an innovative revolutionary idea. He thought if we put our talent, our money, and our resources behind making the best animated films possible, they'd sell well. <laughs> I know it sounds so obvious, but believe it or not, that's not what Disney had been doing up until, you know, actually kind of the mid-80s. In fact, Disney was not doing very well financially at all. Uh, the uh, the opponents, usually referred to as the Don Bluth or Don Bluth films, were doing far better at the box office. Films that include The Secret of Nim, An American Tale, and of course The Land Before Time. 
all of which were selling much better than what Disney was putting out at the time, which I don't even remember, which probably goes to show you something. But there, there, was, there was one exception. See, Katzenberg was like, no, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to really throw ourselves behind this. We're going to get this amazingly talented director, and we're going to get these very talented writers and actors, and we're going to throw, we're going to get Spielberg involved. It's going to be great. And that film turned out to be a great financial success and effectively the turn of the new Disney era as a filmmaker. I am, of course, referring to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. However, that is directly tied into the making of this film. Because they had already started the very beginning pre-work of Little Mermaid before Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out. But as a result of not only the new approach, you know, throw resources and talent at it, but also the fact that, you know, they legitimately were making decent money off of this, all of a sudden it was a proven fact. Now, if you don't understand what I mean by that, I want you to imagine a, a boardroom. And there's all the money people. And I, I call them the money people. I don't mean like accountants or whatever. These are the people who decide what to do with the money. They're the ones who are really in charge of any given company. And I use that generic term because it varies from company to company, okay? Just in the off chance you've never heard me use the phrase the money people before. So the money people are all sitting in this room and they're like, okay, so... Katzenberg over there thinks we should really pour resources into the filmmaking and animation department. What do you guys think? I don't know. I mean, we haven't been doing well lately. Yeah, that's true. And the typical response to do when you're doing badly when it comes to a specific thing is either either to cut funding or chop it off entirely. But you know what? Just this once. Let's go ahead and give him a bone. We'll see what happens with his first big picture. Who Framed Roger Rabbit wasn't his first picture, but you get the idea. So, okay, sure, we'll throw him a bone. Now, what happens is Who Framed Roger Rabbit was financially successful. This now means that when it comes back to the meeting room of the money people, they're like, oh, it worked. Okay, keep doing it. And this led to the Disney Renaissance, pretty much directly. So, Little Mermaid is what I, what I mentally think of as a Jurassic Park film. Let me explain that one. <laughs> This isn't a formal lorium, it's just how I tend to mentally classify it. See, there's Star Wars, and there's Jurassic Park. Star Wars had just new actors, new talent, people inventing new technologies and new techniques with regards to filmmaking, and just kind of making it up on the fly as they go, being over budget, constantly having issues, and the whole thing was a disaster, and it was Star Wars. Jurassic Park had all the pieces in place. Some of the most talented, creative, and intelligent people in the industry with all the funding and backing they needed to fully throw themselves into the creative work, and it was Jurassic Park. This is how film success stories work. If you look at just about any big successful film, they are one of these two categories. They got... Basically, it's just complete coincidence because nothing was going right, but it all clicked. Or... They had everything in place to make a classic, and they did. This is Little Mermaid. They had all the pieces in place for this one. They, in, they, they opened up an entirely new studio just to help doing the work on this. They farmed out half the work on this because they were getting overwhelmed by how difficult and how costly this was. Think about how much extra money that's costing. And I remind you, not counting the previous film, they were basically not doing well financially. Remember, Who Framed Roger Rabbit only technically counted as an animated film. And so, in the bean counter circumstance, Little Mermaid was actually the first successful animated film. I mentioned earlier the Bluth films, or Bluth films, I don't remember how to pronounce it, sorry. Well, 
Little Mermaid went up against All Dogs Go to Heaven. How many of you have even seen that film? I have, as it happens. But this was the first time in years, not only that a Disney film had really had a big financial and critical success, but it finally beat its major animated competitors of the time. They also, they did, God, they did so much. I have several back behind the scenes notes here. Um, they were originally going to get Patrick Stewart to play Triton. He couldn't. He was doing TNG at the time. Uh, they were originally going to get Jim Carrey, which at this point was pretty much at the beginning of his career when he was really starting to get going, uh, in order to play Sebastian. He didn't actually get that. No, instead they got a bunch of actors and actresses who you've probably never heard of any of them before or since, with the possible exception of, let's see here, Christopher Daniel Barm, Bames, Barms? I can't read my own handwriting. He's the guy who plays Eric. He's actually a semi-prolific voice actor since. If you've ever seen the 90s Spider-Man cartoon, he played Peter Parker. You're welcome, because you're never going to unhear that. Trust me, I can't. And Jodie Benson, who plays Ariel, this was her second film ever. Think about that for a second. But again, that gets back to the point. They, fig they got the talent scouts... They got the funding, they got the people, they got the backing, they took the time they needed, and they made an amazing film. Um, I mentioned the staff, I mentioned the funding. Uh, Ron Clements and John Musher? Musher? Misker? Oh my god, I can't read, I cannot read my own handwriting. Give me a second. <laughs> What's his name? Musker. It is Musker. That doesn't, okay. Ron Clements and John Musker. Uh, are the duos who worked on this one. Uh, you may have heard of them pri previous to this because they also worked on The Great Mouse Detective, which wasn't as successful, but you can my, I bring that up because you can see the talent there. Great Mouse Detective was one of those films that you can appreciate, in my opinion, but not quite enjoy, because it just didn't quite manage it. But Little Mermaid did. But then again, Little Mermaid had the backing, as I mentioned earlier. They also did things differently. They had the actors actually come in and record the lines first, and then did the animation to match that. If you're paying attention, that's how they used to do it at Disney Animation, and they stopped doing that because it takes longer and it's more money. This is going to be a recurring trend, by the way. Um, they also uh, brought in uh, the multiplex, the multi-plan camera of Doom. Now, that's actually amusing. So... It was a type of camera, uh, animation camera technique they used all the way back in the 37s, 1937. And they're like, this is what we're going to do. They brought it in for uh, Snow White, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. The whole point was you could have layers of sheets of the animation, and then the camera could do, you know, m literally move around to uh, make the illusion of movement. The most obvious and common use of this is, if you ever see an animated character standing still while the background is moving around them, that's that technology. I, sh I shouldn't say that across the board, but that's how Disney did it. That's how Disney did this sort of thing. This is also the last animated film where they used this technology, although it is very obvious in its usage, and you can kind of see it here and there. You might think, why was this the last one? Well, these, these devices were invented and built in 1937. They were a little bit out of date. And the one that, the main one they had at the studio, there's actually not even that many left in the world at this point, by the way. But the main one they had at the studio, uh, yeah, it was too old and dilapidated. It didn't work. And they're like, ugh. So they had to f farm out that particular animation work. 
Uh, there's actually a specific scene where it's very obvious they used it. It was uh, part of your world, the part of your world song. But um, another thing they did that was very unusual. Now, so okay, I mentioned the voice acting bit. I mentioned the multiplan camera. Uh, bo both of these were things they used to do and didn't do anymore because they were expensive. And now the bean counters were allowing them to do it, and they made a successful film. Go figure! But anyways, I do want to mention one change that was actually a pretty big change. They made the music with slash after the script. Now, if you, that, if you don't understand that, most Disney animated films, especially the musicals, what they would do is they would write the music... And then the script would be constructed to fit the songs and, and fit the, the scenes, right? This time, they kind of worked alongside each other. Now, the results are obvious, because even though this is a Disney musical, it's actually, in my opinion, one of the more tolerable ones, especially of this particular era, you know, the stuff leading up to this. Why? Because the songs need lead naturally into scenes, which lead naturally into songs. There's, there's no real big chunk. And everything flows as if it's a logical byproduct of the events happening. You'll notice that a lot of the scenes, and this was actually quite unusual at the time, a lot of the scenes, so usually in a musical number, it'll be like, big musical number, a little bit with dialogue, big musical number. They do a similar format here, but it feels differently because of the fact that the actual authors of the script were working alongside the authors of the song to make those little bridge sections make more sense for the events that have been happening and lead more naturally into each other. Basically, rather than a jump cut, we had a gradient, to put it into simplistic terminology. So, lots and lots and lots of people... Uh, and we're working on this and trying to make this as good as possible. But there's one last thing i got to point out, and that's Pixar. How many of you even know that Pixar was around at this point in time? It was actually a subdivision, although that's not quite true either. Uh, Pixar has had a strange and complicated history, and I need to look up exactly when Howard the Duck happened, because that's actually relevant to Pixar history, believe it or not. <laughs> the point is, Pixar at this point was working with Disney. And they had this brand new thing, the Computer Animation Production System, Inc. and Paint System. <sighs> well, that's a little bit of a mouthful. They called it the uh, CAPS, the CAPS Ink and Paint. What's the relevance of that? It was a brand new technology to, to basically digitally craft certain scenes to allow them to accomplish the same thing the multi-camera did, except digitally in a computer. Now, if you don't understand how significant that is, let me just say that this, this one invention, arguably, is probably the single most relevant reason why the Disney Renaissance happened. And why animation changed. It, it, was, the, it was the changer. It was the big invention that changed animation going forward. Virtually every film coming after this would not use the multi-camera anymore. And a whole lot of them would use this CAPS system. And the CAPS system would be developed and advanced and improved. There's actually CGI, in, if you could call it that, computer graphics, in this film. I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't notice, because they used it very sparingly, because it was so experimental. The most obvious example, if you happen to have watched this film recently, towards the end of the film, Ariel, who is human at this point in time, runs down a staircase to view human Ursula as she's mind-controlling Eric into saying, the wedding must happen tonight, right, that scene? That staircase, that was done with the CAP system. There's another scene that was done entirely with the CAP system in this film, 
And and when I mean entirely, I mean the whole thing was 100% computer generated. It's very brief. It's only a couple seconds long. It's at the very end when the ship is leaving. You know, tr uh, Triton has made the rainbow, and you see the ship, uh, the wedding ship sailing away, and there's the rainbow, and everyone's waving at it. That little bit right there was using the brand new system. Now, if you're paying attention, you notice it. It does look different because because it's not just computer generated like like say you know the escape from the Aladdin cave which is obviously computer generated and looks different no it was a use of it was a way of using the computer to do traditional animation so it does look different because it is different but it's not actually CGI in the strictest sense of the word so you can kind of see how they were starting to branch out with this film too technologically and in terms of technique which leads to the Disney Renaissance. But I've talked enough about the behind the scenes, and I'm sure none of you give a damn. So let's talk about the film proper. Forgive me, the film geek in me peeks out every now and again when I get to discuss these moments of history. Like, it's just fascinating stuff to talk about for me. So I'm going to refer to my notes a lot, because I had several things here going through I wanted to talk about. The first and the foremost is, why is there a dog on a ship? Was that normal? I don't actually know. It costs him later. <laughs> and, oh, I should mention something. Uh, you notice the bubbles? Every single one of those bubbles was drawn by hand. No copy-pasting. That was an insistence by the directors. The bubbles alone cost the, the studio extra money because they had to farm out all of the animation just on the bubbles, basically to put a transparency layer of bubbles on top of certain scenes, just by itself, a whole studio just doing bubbles. Think about that. Anyways. <clears throat> so the first thing we see is that fish are edible. Now, I know that sounds like a duh, but I point that out because that fish is clearly intelligent. Just like uh, Flounder later. You know, they can talk, they can interact. He even gives a bit audible. Whew. And I point that out because that's one of the more interesting aspects of this film to me. This is a Mediterranean... Oh, I'm sorry. I suppose I should mention this as well. Uh, some, wor some people say it's in Denmark. It's, it's the Norway coast because, duh, right? Uh, no, this is actually in the Mediterranean. The directors themselves mention this on the co director's commentary track. And uh, they don't say where exactly. My money? Somewhere around Italy. Because, well, this is going to sound like a stupid way to bring it up, but I was trying to figure out exactly where it was set. And, as it happens... Someone had already done some of the work for me. Sorry, that was a fruit fly. Just, just crawling on my pants. What the hell? <laughs> I have nothing better to do. Than... Anyways. Flamingos are actually in Italy. Go figure. And it kind of gets that sort of... you know, it, it, it Basically, in my opinion, it's Italy or Spain. It, it's got to be Italy or Spain. Because of the way it's presented. Because of the way it looks. And Italy makes the most sense to me. So that's my thoughts. But either way, Mediterranean coast. These people obviously live and breathe off of seafood. The sea people and the seafood are people. This is one of those interesting things that they rarely acknowledge when it comes to these kind of anthropomorphized films. Where it's like, oh, I can talk to the animals. But I also eat chicken. You know, it's, it's like... <laughs> you got to make this work. This is one of the very few films to acknowledge that problem. They don't really resolve it in any substantial way, but they do at least bring it up. I'll mention that more later. Uh, so, uh, what do we got here? These... <laughs> um, right at the beginning, I shared this in Discord, right at the beginning, for just a, very, like a 
half of a second, Triton is coming into his sea kingdom. And as the camera's panning over the crowd, you can see Donald, Goofy, and Mickey in the crowd. And the moment I saw that, I was like, oh my god, they knew. Kingdom Hearts is real. Anyways, um, why does Triton have so many daughters? I mean, I've been there, right? We've all played Crusader Kings too. Okay, my wife is pregnant. It's a girl. Okay. Oh, my wife is pregnant. It's a girl. Okay, my, my mistress is pregnant. It's a girl. <laughs> Can we change the primogeniture laws yet? No, eight more years? Ugh. Anyways. <clears throat> where is the mother? I know that's like a thing, is no parents, but where is the mother? I, mm. So, the first thing the movie does is it establishes that Ariel is a teenager. Gadur, I suppose. But I bring that up because I don't mean she's 16, which means she technically is a teenager anywhere between the ages of 13 and 19. No, what I mean by that is she acts like a teenager. She's just kind of flighty and doesn't really care, and she's not really evil per se or stupid, but she just, it's, oh, what's that? I don't want well, You know what? And she thinks about personal things. There's a bit later where... Eric, uh, not Eric, excuse me, Triton actually goes over the line with her, and he says, if if Eric had died, it's no big deal. One less human around. Now that is horrible for him to say. But you'll notice Ariel barely reacts to it. Of course she doesn't. She's a teenager. She doesn't understand what that means. You know what she understands? Her stuff being broken, and that's what causes her to start sobbing. It's interesting to note that this is one of the things the Disney films will be doing. They will actually have elements that are, for lack of a better way to put it, designed for the adults in the audience. They're designed for the people who are paying attention to pick up on them. The mo the, don't mistake me, the majority of these films are, of course, aimed at kids, and this is no exception. But this was kind of... Well, this is a trend. A trend that continues to this day, honestly, with both the Disney animated department and the Pixar stuff that they push out. And I only point that out because there's actually quite a bit of that in this film, which is just... Uh, moving on. <clears throat> the shark. Notice the shark doesn't talk. Now, that's interesting. Because even the fish talk. And, you know, the the, the crabs and the squirrels and all that. Squirrels? <laughs> Squids. They all talk. They're all like, hey, what's up? But the shark doesn't talk. Now that, of course, makes sense, because the shark is a predator. Believe it or not, even though the shark only is in one scene in this film, he serves a very important purpose, because he establishes the very nature of predator versus everyone else. You'll notice that, with only a couple of exceptions, all the other sea creatures that coexist with each other don't eat each other. They are not predators, in short. No, the one that is a predator is the shark, which is over there, which is ostracized and not allowed in the rest of the kingdom. And if he comes in, he is treated as a serious threat, which must be avoided or destroyed at all costs. Think about that for a second. And keep it in mind, because I'm going to bring it up later, too. But the film makes the, the thematic point very clear. A predator, is some, in, in this particular context, is someone who takes from another sentient sapient being for their own sake you could replace the word predator with the word murderer fairly effortlessly. Again, keep that in mind for later. So, Scuttle, the, the, the bird, the seagull. Some options here. Is he lying? Is he uh, incredibly stupid? Eh, that could be. Is he literally insane? 
it's a recurring gag that he claims to know how the human world works, and he has absolutely no idea how it works and just makes up stuff constantly. And I'm not sure which of these possibilities it is. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts. What do you think? Is he just, hey? I mean, I know it's for comic relief, but given the way it's portrayed in-universe, there's even a point where he says, have I ever been wrong about anything important? I'm starting to wonder how much of this is deliberate or not. I do I, as much as I hate to say this, the most obvious answer is probably that he's lying. I prefer to think that he's a moron, because that's less objectionable to me, but what the hell do I know? So, <clears throat> the, the Disney films in this era tend to have a bit of a pattern. Uh, probably the most other obvious one to follow this pattern is Lion King. Uh, Aladdin actually noticeably very much differentiates from this pattern, but I'm getting off topic. The pattern is, okay, briefly establish the world so the audience knows what's going on. Undersea kingdom, you know, fish that can talk to each other, sea people that can talk to each other. Okay, established. Then we need to establish the protagonist. Usually there's some kind of thing that makes them just kind of, you know, oh, Ariel, you know, like that. And so we see here that she is not present at a big concert that she was scheduled to be at because she's off looking at neat stuff from, you know, a wreck. So, okay, sure. Then you have to establish something else. Now, the something else varies. Usually it's what I like to think of as the NPCs, the other major characters that are not protagonist, or the next one, because the next thing that is established is the villain. Now, this pattern, it, this pattern exists for a good reason. World, okay, we know the premise. Main character, duh. Supporting characters, villain. And you could see the importance of the pre presentation and how you want to start off, you want to start off free, then go light, and then go dark in that order. And it makes sense. It's not, I'm not saying it has to be an absolute, and as I just mentioned, Aladdin doesn't do that at all. Aladdin starts off with a joke, and then immediately jumps into Jafar being as terrifying as he is in the entire film, so. Yeah. Anyways, getting off topic. <clears throat> but this establishes, Ursula. Now, Ursula, I want you to, I want to bring your attention to something. There's these little shrimp guys that she's got. And as she's complaining about being starving, she eats one of them. Notice that they have eyes and react and are obviously some kind of intelligence just like the rest of the sea creatures. And she still eats one. Do me a favor and keep that in mind for later. <clears throat> so, <sighs> Triton is shown as a secondary antagonist. Now, this is interesting, because, again, this is one of those things that's so obvious for the kids in the audience, and yet so obvious for the adults in the obvious too, or the audience, too. See, his points are actually very valid. One of the biggest ones he mentions is, I couldn't stand the thought of my daughter ending up on a fish hook. I mean, do me a favor and picture what that feels like for a second, and then try to picture your daughter... With, with the hook going through her skin. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm with Triton on this one. Now, he comes across as too harsh, absolutely. That's part of the kid appeal. But if you pay attention, in every scene he's in, with no exceptions, every single one of them, there's part of him that just kind of goes, ah. sometimes he says it vocally, am I being too harsh on her? Did I, was, I, was that too much? I, I don't know. Even the scene where he goes nuts and, and rages about, screw the humans and destroys all her stuff, as he's leaving, there is a look of regret and sorrow on his face. At every point, they make it clear, Triton does actually care. Unfortunately, like most movie fathers, he has no idea how to express that. So that's cute. 
But you'll also notice that Triton, in addition to not wanting to lose his daughter, which is one of the main themes of the film, well, he's concerned about real things. In other words, teenagers don't tend to care about real things. They're teenagers. They probably don't even know what real things are yet. No offense. <laughs> but you know what I mean? A teenager doesn't understand, at least hopefully, does not understand war. A teenager shouldn't understand war. A teenager shouldn't understand, uh, you know, starvation or um, predators or, you know, massacres or horrifying disease or wasting or anything, any of that really awful stuff, right? But that's all that's really on Triton's mind. He doesn't really care about her keeping this junk, whatever. And if she wants to swim around, it's sure fine. You know what he's worried about? He's worried about real stuff hurting her. He's worried about a shark eating her. He's worried about humans trying to come and attack her. Now, he is anti-humanist, and that's explained in stuff that was in a deleted scene. But the fact of the matter is... Or not a deleted scene, in the original storyboard. The fact of the matter is he is concerned about his daughter getting into real trouble. So you can kind of sympathize with the guy, if only he knew how to actually express any of that. Which, you know, need to work on that, buddy. There's a nice line she has. She says, "How I don't see the way C.E. does. How could a world that makes such wonderful things be bad? That line, that's for the adults in the audience. We, whatever our age is, when we have grown up, we have come to acknowledge and recognize that the world produces as much good, wonderful, amazing, fantastic things as it does awful, terrible, and horrible. That's life. In fact, I actually pulled out a quote just to talk about this. If you... The quote starts, It's not safe out here. It's wondrous. With treasures to satiate both desires both subtle and gross. But it's not for the timid. That quote is the kind of thing you tell to an adult who understands this. And the film makes it clear, Ariel, the child, does not. She does not have a comprehension of bad yet. And that's a good thing. She shouldn't. She should stay that innocent. She should stay that happy. And in an ideal world, she would never have to find out how bad bad can get. So, <clears throat> this leads to uh, the uh, the song, you know, the big song, Part of Your World. And I do have to give really special praise at this point. I've been kind of sleeping quiet about it. In fact, actually, the animators feel they did a really bad job with this film in general. No joke. But I have to gush about the general directing and animation of several of the scenes in this song. There's this really wonderful part where she is in this grotto, and she's so she's swirling around to the grotto. She can always see the light up above, which is from the sun and the surface. And she, at the end of the song, she she reaches out through the hole into this this beyond, and then hesitates and then shrinks back into her cage. And it's all it's fairly obvious. It's not the most subtle thing in the world, but it is very. Very well directed and very well animated, and God, it just deserves special praise, and I had to give that extra, extra special, special praise there. One of the funny things that was so difficult for the animators was doing all the underwater hair. They actually used real-life uh, people in space as a reference point for how hair would act in what is effectively no gravity in order to try and animate. In fact, they, they used a lot of real-life... Uh, <sighs> reference points when it comes to doing the animation for this film, which I, I think it shows, personally, but anyways. 
So, <clears throat> then we see the ship, and they're setting off fireworks because, you know, it's, it's, it's the prince's birthday. I have to admit, my first thought was, oh god, she's going to see a ship and they're shooting cannons. No, no, it's, it's fireworks. I've even seen this film and I forgot about that, and I was just like, yeah, you can kind of tell I'm kind of getting the Triton mentality here. <clears throat> Thankfully, it is a nice ship instead of an evil ship. <laughs> no, seriously, if you pay attention, the kingdom that he is in, the, the totally Italian kingdom, but at least the Mediterranean kingdom he's part of, is obviously very positive and lighthearted and happy and joyful and we're good peoples kind of a thing. Which actually would make more sense if there was still Norway. I'm, I'm just messing. Anyways. <clears throat> so Eric... <laughs> this is when Eric gets a little bit of characterization. Now, funny thing, by memory, I forgot how much of a character Eric was in this film. I think that's mostly because of Kingdom Hearts which relegates him to barely being a character in both of the, the, the Atlantis sections across two games. In fact, I don't think he's even seen at all in the first game. But, and he's barely present in the second, even though it's covering the events of this film. But yeah, he's a fairly major character, and we do get quick, quick and dirty. You know, he obviously doesn't think of himself as some great hero. He doesn't like the statue. He obviously cares a lot about his people and wanting to be happy and wanting to be a good ruler. He also wants to marry for love. Now, that is going to be a common theme in the Disney Renaissance, so I hope you're used to that, because holy hell. Um, but there's a very small inference that he has actually been off meeting people for political marriages that are trying to be arranged on his behalf. It's one of the very, very few times this film sways into the political realm. And it's interesting because it gives an insight into what kind of country and kingdom they are. If they can afford not to make a political marriage, they're sitting pretty. They're doing very well for themselves, which is interesting to me because everything we see is, in fact, that they are very prosperous. Now, I don't mean to be negative, but I, I imagine a lot of that prosperity comes from the bounty of the sea. Are, are they going to keep doing that? Because... Those fish are literally the friends of the people you just kind of became allies with by marriage, I might add. So, <laughs> we got a problem here. Or do we? Because interestingly enough, I was actually, I hate to, to talk about politics in a Little Mermaid film, but honestly, think about it for a second. Think of the advantage of having, being the one human kingdom on the Mediterranean who has a strong alliance with the king of the Mediterranean Sea. With, with the mermaid people and knowing that they're there and being able to interact with them. Think about what an advantage that would be at the national level. Think about how much they could use that to their benefit, even if you aren't a conquering power. Think about how much you could use that to increase your trade or help other people or to get more favorable you know, terms and just all sorts of stuff. You would have to basically swear off the sea. That's the trade-off. You couldn't you know, fish anymore. But... In exchange for that, you gained something very, very valuable, I think. I don't know, just, just food for thought. I mean, think of, if nothing else, think of the kind of non-living bounty of the sea that could be traded to them going forward. Anyways, <clears throat> sorry about talking about politics. Moving on, moving on. So Eric is rescued. Yay! Uh, Eric also uh, nearly gets himself killed trying to get everyone safe, so we know he's a heroic person. He also nearly gets himself killed trying to save his dog. I know, I know. It says a lot about his character. He probably shouldn't have brought the dog onto the ship. 
Ariel saves him. Of course she does. And this leads to him only really remembering her voice. Uh, this leads to... Love. <laughs> There's no nice way to say this. They portray this in, in the absolute classical, typical portrayal of love at first sight. I roll my eyes. I, 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 or actually, you know what, let me be a little more of a geek about that if I may. You know what I roll? To disbelieve. I got a 12. I've said before that I don't really buy these kind of romance stories. It's not as bad as I remembered, but still, the two of them are acting like they just saw a cute person across the hallway and they're, they both kind of like, ooh, hi, and then they both leave. <laughs> Which I suppose actually makes sense since they're both teenagers. Yes, really. Actually, funny fact, the guy playing him is 17 at this point in time historically. Uh, the guy playing Eric, so... <clears throat> so then we kind of go through the, the middle section of the film, which is when Triton really becomes the antagonist. Like I said, he goes over the line, uh, destroys the stuff, she freaks out. And this is when the door is open, because now she, who I remind you has no idea how bad bad can get, decides to make a deal with Ursula, who she knows, has, at least to some extent or another, I mentioned earlier that Ursula had already said that she's been banished from the palace. Well, uh, um, in the subsequent works, we are told why. She tried to take over the kingdom. She tried to usurp Triton and become the queen of the, the Mediterranean Sea, which uh, didn't go over well. She should probably be fairly thankful that all he did was banish her. Naturally, she heads out and does her thing. Here's the thing. As weird as this may sound, I don't like that. It's too simple. And it doesn't follow one of the big themes of the work, which is predators. See, we find out that she she makes these deals with people and they get shriveled into these little worm-like things who are in agony. You know, hell reference. We're walking, we're walking. Several references to her being Lucifer and them being damned souls. And... <laughs> we also see that she keeps several creatures, some of which are very similar to those, in bottles and jars as part of her components for her spells. She then uses these to cast. If I'm saying this too neutrally, let me make this clear again, because I imagine some of the kids in the audience didn't even pick up on this. She kills beings, living, sentient, sapient beings who are aware, in order to use her magic. On the off chance that that's not horrifying enough, there's even a bit later when she turns herself into the, the beautific form that the specific final component for that is a butterfly that she has captured, which is desperately trying to get away. She's a predator. And as we've already seen, there's a bit of a natural cultural stigma against a predator. And so it would make sense that someone like her wouldn't be welcomed with the rest of society, and thus she would be banished. You are no longer part of the tribe because you are using the tribe as part of the resources. That's not how that works. That's actually, funnily enough, one of the most common reasons why someone would be banished from tribal communities back in the day. Because they turned against the tribe. So, you're out of the group, buddy. Make it work on your own. This is true in fiction as well as in real life. I like this idea better. It follows the logical theme of predators and predation in general, and it makes her... Um, 
a little more horrifying and a little less cliched. Feel free to call me stupid if you, if you like to. I'm, I'm sure I'm probably thinking far too much about this film, but at the same time, I'm not sure. By every interview I've seen, the writers and, and creators of, of most of the films in the Renaissance did put a lot of thought and effort into these films. And as I said, she does kill people to cast spells, so, you know, that's kind of horrible. It's okay, she's singing a song while doing it, so it's all good. So, of course, she... Uh, I'm going to kind of speed through the rest of this, because the, the, the rest of the film just kind of starts racing in pace. Uh, she has issues with her legs. You notice she's naked when she goes to the surface, by the way. I'm sorry, I hate to point that out, but it's actually interesting because I never noticed that before. She's not wearing any clothing until um, Scuttle gives her the rags to wrap around her. Now that makes sense. This it, the Pants don't just magically appear, right? Now, of course, it is very vague, and in fact, I only noticed because there was one bit where she walks by, and I was like, I didn't see anything on her hip, which is where like the underwear would usually be. And I assumed they'd given her some kind of concealing cloth. And then I rewound and started rewatching. I was like, wow, they actually did that. <laughs> no titillation. That's not where I'm going with this. I'm just pointing it out because it actually does make a lot of sense. And they de-emphasize it because, you know, they don't want to draw attention to it. Why would they? Instead, they just show, showcase her as someone who obviously is still struggling with this. And it's probably sad that there's a lot of really good scenes where she doesn't say anything. This, of course, is when the strength of the animation and the direction needs to come into mind, because she needs to be expressive and communicative without saying a single word of dialogue, what I usually mentally refer to as the R2-D2 effect. In short, I've noticed a lot of time in fiction, if the creators of the fiction have a character that you can't understand for whatever reason, maybe they speak in beeps or they speak in another language, or they don't speak at all, it is then incumbent upon the creators to put more effort into characterizing them, which tends to make them better in terms of characterization. So she actually is a pretty cool character for this section, and it's it's mostly because a lot of effort is put into her still being a character, even though she can't speak. It's a shame she can't write. That would solve this problem very quickly. Hi, I'm Ariel. I saved your life. I gave away my voice. Please kiss me so we can be together. <laughs> now, uh... Look at my notes here. Um, I mentioned here, of course it's a coastal city. Why wouldn't it be a coastal city? Seafood. Nom, nom, nom. This is also where I put down my notes about the Mediterranean thing I've already talked about. Um, this is where Odo shows up. I swear to God, I never knew that was Renée Abergenois as the chef. But that's Renée Abergenois as the chef. Oh my God. <laughs> He sounds so young! Of course, this is 1989. It would be four more years before he, he pre, uh, premiered on Emissary over in Deep Space Nine. That's like, wow! Anyways, sorry, sorry. Never knew that. Um, <laughs> it's weird, the things. And, and this could have had Patrick Stewart. I'm going to have topic. Um, <clears throat> they go through the, the, the courtship phase. And other than the animation, I only have one thing to say about it. One of the things that irritates me is what I call the romance of the week. Because it's always flimsy and it doesn't actually do anything. And it's just, it's just there to fulfill the checkbox. There has been romance. And that's it. This film kind of follows the same general path. Because, you know, love at first sight or whatever. And roll the disbelief. I already did the gag. But 
at least the film does try to show that the two do naturally have a lot of chemistry together. Now, there are some unfortunate implications that I'm just trying to ignore as hard as I can because she can't talk. But I will at least give the film credit, and they have basically two and a half days of really getting to know each other before they start to feel like they have actually come closer and can be considered a romantic couple. That's better than just, hi, hi, mwah. Not by much, but it's something, right? Anyways. Uh, so, um, this is when Ursula gets involved, as she nearly lost her bet, and directly possesses her. I already mentioned the staircase thing, which is awesome. Um, you know, Then it, it kind of races to the conclusion, oh my god, Ursula's doing this, and we must get married at sunset in order to specifically ensure that nothing will ever stop me. <laughs> and she just gets wrecked by all the animals. <laughs> It's, it's actually kind of funny to watch, if I'm being honest. Um, poor Ariel. She can't swim, of course, because she's had legs for two days. She's having trouble walking at this point. But she managed to get over there, and they have the big, doomy fight. But it's too late! No, they're literally seconds too late. Next time, next time, just kiss. Word of the wise. Just kiss next time. <laughs> and, uh... That leads to, you know, the, the curse being over and her dragging her back below the waves. And Ursula's like, ha, 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 ha. We get a very small insight into why Ursula is as powerful as she is. As we see towards the end of the film, all of those people were mermaids and mermen, right? They all are freed because the contracts binding them are released with Ursula's death. So they can go off and be free. The ones that weren't turned into components for spells, obviously. So... We do, it's, by the way, that also gives us motivation on why she keeps making these contracts. Because she needs more components for more spells. Predator, I already said this. And this, of course, uh, shows part of how the magic of the setting works. As weird as this is going to sound, there's actually very little magic of any form in this, uh, in this game, listen to me, in this film. But what it is seems to be a form of rules magic. I make a binding contract. The binding contract then establishes itself, yada yada. Most of the other magic is just kind of hand-waved as power of the ocean by virtue of the trident, and that's kind of as far as that goes. But we do see that the trident, for all its power, does not bypass a binding contract. Thus, the rules magic is superior, as it always is, in basically all of fiction ever. So she uses that to get Triton, and you know, I asked earlier, how much do you think Triton really cares about his daughter? He cares enough to immediately curse himself with effectively no hesitation in order to save her life. Just like that. Yeah. Now you could say that's stupid, and it is. And you could say that what he did is foolish, and it was. But it does show how, for all of his stupidity and lack of anger control, the man cares deeply about his father. Or his, his daughter, excuse me. He doesn't care about his father at all. He hates him. God, screw that guy. <sighs> Final battle happens. Eric kills her. Uh, the theme of letting go of children kind of comes in again. You know, what are you going to do? Which, yeah, yeah, it sucks. Um, I do want to point out one last thing. Eric was the one to kill Ursula. I actually kind of regret that. I would have rather that, you know, Ariel herself was the one to kill Ursula since she's the main character and... She's been fairly proactive and dynamic in just about everything she does here, so I can't imagine she would have any hesitation to do that. But A, they want to make sure her hands are clean. B, well, the damsel in distress thing, there's no nice way to say it. 
But there is one valid reason for Eric to be the one to kill Ursula. That means Eric is the one who saves Triton, because Ursula's death releases the curses, which means everyone's free. Now that is admittedly important. It means Eric has now proven that humans are not all bad to Triton in one-to-way demonstration. And this way Triton can kind of overcome his bias, and they can have peace between the kingdoms, and then they can conquer the Mediterranean, and they'll get a hold of me. I'm over in the Ottomans right now. We're peacing out, but we'll make it work. We'll take India, and then China, and then... Point being, it makes sense that it's Eric. If I was to rewrite this film, there is very little I would change, and this is the one big thing. I would make both of them do it. I would make there be a team. Because that would even better get across the thematic point, wouldn't it? That a mermaid and a human working together defeated the Cicalia. Yeah, that would be awesome. And of course, it would follow through with, you know, Ariel being, you know, master of her own destiny, so to speak, and being in her element when she's working with someone else, and it would make him, you know, be the hero, and he would be working with her, and just it, the whole thing would fit much better in that way, in my opinion. But we didn't get that. Instead, we got the beginning of the Disney Renaissance. Obviously, all of these will be concluded before these go live, by months and months, because I do my work well in advance, because I, I'm a TV show and I try to do the best job I can, but I am actually very curious and very nervous about the kind of comments I'm going to get in the comments section for this and the next nine or eight or however many of those films. Don't hold back, as ever. I do like hearing your guys' thoughts and opinions, but uh, hopefully it'll be interesting, and I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you next time.